Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, Les Enlumineurs listeners. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Kristen Racanello, the editor, producer, and regular host of this podcast. Although it's been quite some time due to COVID, we will have a few exciting interviews with cutting-edge scholars scheduled this spring, so stay tuned for more information about our long-form podcast schedule. But for now, through the rest of February and the beginning of March, we will continue to feature our special topics mini-podcast episodes. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, or if you're generally familiar with Les Numineurs, you've probably heard of a type of manuscript called a book of hours. Books of hours are often billed as the medieval bestseller, a text for the masses that made practicing performative personal piety uniquely accessible, especially after the age of print. And indeed, books of hours were medieval best-selling manuscripts, copied, painted, and personalized in droves from the mid-13th to the mid-16th century. These manuscripts were desirable because they allowed medieval people to imitate the lives of the most sacred Christian figures, Mary and Christ, through a cyclical daily structure. The Book of Hours ritualized and consecrated time on earth. However, musings on the state of being in time on earth was a consistent subject of medieval thought that can be found in other less well-known texts from the Middle Ages today. It may surprise you to know that another bestseller, which we will discuss in depth on the podcast next week, was in fact a spiritual meditation on the contemptible, miserable condition of humanity's time on earth. But before we delve into the content of this fascinating, existentially gloomy, yet persistently popular text, I want to define exactly what I mean by using the word popular in today's episode, and I mean using the word popular for a text that's almost completely unknown today. What people read most in the Middle Ages is not necessarily self-evident, even to the experienced medievalist for many reasons. So, how can we even know that a text was popular? What parameters can we use to judge that? Well, the most obvious means of discerning which texts were the most popular is by the number of manuscripts that survive today. According to Pascal Bourgain, quote, a large number of copies usually indicates an intensity of need that drives scribes and readers toward these texts, end quote. Now, of course, there are texts that were popular but were not widely copied, and these would primarily be texts that are memorized, such as some prayers, poems, and music, or they were texts that were not meant for transportation and circulation but were intended to exist in only one particular place. Traveling troubadours are an iconic example of how a text might travel by memory rather than by codex. 
troubadours, or composers and performers of lyric poetry, memorized their songs and did not always need to copy their poems down, although often the popularity of their work did eventually lead to documentation and transcription. The texts of troubadour songs are responsible for many of the enduring romantic impressions of the Middle Ages that feature so prominently in pop culture to this day, dealing mainly with themes of chivalry and courtly love. Although the content of these works, that is, these works by the troubadours, was often metaphysical and intellectual, many were also humorous or vulgar satires composed to provide moralizing and titillating experiences for the noble audience simultaneously. So, of course, many of the most popular or entertaining pastimes enjoyed in the Middle Ages can never be recovered or reconstructed with much certainty, especially those involving performance and memorization. Where we can be quite certain about popular desire, however, is in the context of written text. These were recorded, copied, and bound into books, a labor-intensive act that can tell us much about the desire for and use of various texts during and after the medieval period. Like any object, after a manuscript is made, its fate is quite uncertain. Perhaps the book will be passed down and cherished or fade away from memory, only to be rediscovered in another century. To begin, though, a person must decide that a new copy of that manuscript is necessary and worth the subsequent investment of time, labor, and economy. So, the number of surviving manuscripts can give us some sense of what texts enjoyed popular reading and recitation in the medieval period, that is, what texts people thought it was worthwhile to pay for. However, we can't rely solely on those numbers today. Ownership is a deeply personal choice. As an example, we choose our own favorite socks for, and perhaps begrudgingly keep maybe the ugliest ones from someone like our great aunt. The historical record of our clothes will catalog these two objects just the same. They're in the same collection. Maybe an astute observer will notice the holes in the favored sock and the pristine condition of those we kept in the back of the sock drawer. But maybe we wore our favorite socks so much, so often, that we had to get rid of them. Maybe if we really loved these socks, we might sew them into something else and give them a new life. I've often made tea cozies with my old favorite socks. The same ownership trends are true for manuscripts. While the number of extant copies of a text in contemporary collections is a good indication of that text's popularity, it is not a truthful catalog of all of the copies that existed historically. A manuscript that is used often is abused. Although handmade books on parchment are highly durable, much more so than our paperbacks today, they did eventually take up wear and tear, and they might simply be discarded or forgotten once they became illegible. Or, sometimes, favorite texts were reincorporated into other manuscripts as binding materials, breathing a new life into the text and imbuing the new manuscript with a hidden history that stiffened the book's spine. As I have already suggested, the amount of labor time invested in a manuscript determined its transmissibility. 
Naturally, the longer the text, the longer and more arduous it was to copy out by hand, and thus the more expensive and rarer that text was. Fewer copies were made of lengthy works than of shorter works on the same subject, even if they were cited more frequently, suggesting that these texts were often shared between authors and scribes, or that they might have been broken up for copying, a development seen in universities during the 13th century with the Pescia system. For example, the monumental 13th century encyclopedia, the Speculum Maeus of Vincent of Buvais, is often cited by medieval authors, but survives in fewer copies than the De Proprietatibus Rerum, meaning on the properties of things, by Bartolomaeus Anglicanus, which is a much shorter work than that written by Vincent of Buvais. A very short work, noted down on a single sheet or in a booklet, was easy to move and to carry, but also to lose, and texts of this sort survive only when they're gathered into larger volumes, a circumstance that also changed how they were used. This is the case with lyrical poetry of the troubadours, for example, that I mentioned previously, which survive only in very late medieval copies known as chansonniers, when the oldest poems had already disappeared. The percentage of lost manuscripts is difficult to estimate. Older manuscripts have had more time to suffer losses. That's why it's much, much harder to know which texts were bestsellers in late antiquity than it is to know for the 16th century. And I suspect that the number of lost manuscripts varies by text, meaning that some texts might survive better because they were used more as prestige objects and less as practical handbooks or somewhere in between. Remember the example of the socks that are gifted versus your favorite pair. Another important factor that Pascal Bourgain points out is the price of the manuscript. This makes a huge difference in what survives to this day. Quote, the more luxurious, costly copies draw more attention and are better preserved, but also excite envy and theft, which bring them outside the secure world of libraries, whereas more fragile forms are destined to be short-lived, though they probably existed in much higher proportions at the outset. Those given greater use, such as school books, were the more liable to wear out and perish. This, of course, doesn't mean that no practical texts survive. It simply means that the number of manuscripts of this sort is necessarily less than luxury or prestige books, so we can't judge the popularity of a practical text based on the same surviving numbers as those of prestige books. Recall again the image of a paperback book, which you might have owned as a child in elementary school. How many of your classmates' books survive to the present day, do you think? Maybe 50%? 20%? And how many of those have been sold at a yard sale or stored away in boxes and forgotten? Clearly, we can't compare the popularity of practical or educational texts with prestige objects. Well, there is one standout exception to this rule where we really can compare prestige objects with practical texts, and that's the Book of Hours. 
these manuscripts straddled the line between texts intended for use as ritual and educational tools and objects that signaled both spiritual and devotional wealth. According to Roger Week, to this day, the Book of Hours is the most common book type to appear in antiquarian booksellers' catalogs and at auction houses, and the many unfortunately cut single leaves circulating in private and public collections are most often from Books of Hours as well. As I've just noted, these were prestige objects that were often actively used. The use of the Book of Hours wavered by just how costly that manuscript was, but even Books of Hours with page after page of illuminations often show signs of usware and loving interaction from past readers. As children, medieval people learned to read from Books of Hours, and they were referred to as the first book, the primer, in medieval England, a term that came to mean the book from which a child first learned to read and pray. The term primer derives from the hour prima, which was recited on waking early in the morning, the first of the eight hours of the Virgin. Books of hours reflect a desire for personal piety that rose during the late 12th and 13th centuries. They're an invention of the secular world that was intended to reflect the use and function of the breviary, the book containing the divine office that the clergy prayed from each day. Essentially, in the Book of Hours, lay people sought, and maybe they even felt that they found, direct access to God. These were subsequently highly personalized objects that captured the rise of individual agency and personal desires. Each Book of Hours is unique, but also practical. It served as a reminder to meditate on an individually spiritual life and as a prompt for ritual and prayer throughout the day. The core text of the Book of Hours was standard. It was the Hours of the Virgin. Only the Psalms varied in the standard hours. Then there were included also Gospel Lessons, the Hours of the Cross and the Holy Spirit, the Penitential Psalms, the Obsecrote and O Intimerata, and the Office of the Dead. An individual owner would often then insert their own favorite accessory prayers to customize the book's contents. In the Book of Hours, we see a best-selling text that combined both the use and prestige and a personal piety tied to the ritual practices of the church. These books survive in quantities vastly outweighing any other manuscript due to their popularity and their defiance of any single category of manuscript type. Made for the poor and the rich, for leisure and for study, it's unsurprising that the Book of Hours was the bestseller of the Middle Ages. So, now that we've considered all of the factors in a book's survival to the present, we can be certain that, when there are an extraordinary number of surviving texts from approximately the same period found in public collections, those texts once enjoyed a popular audience. However, the greater the number of copies, the harder it is to discern with any certainty the actual accurate number of extant manuscripts. 
Sometimes, popular texts seem to materialize from nowhere, stored in an attic or dresser drawer for generations unnoticed, or, more likely, in a family library or, perhaps, in the collection of a small, less well-known public institution. The numbers of copies of a text that we know of for certain, then, is always only the minimum of surviving texts. This number will continue to expand as more texts are identified and archived. There is also no special number we can apply to all types of manuscripts to know what text was a bestseller. Aside from the price differences ensuring the survival of some texts over others, there's also the question of institutional popularity versus vernacular popularity. Uh, you might be wondering what I mean by that. Well, what I mean is that some texts were considered heretical, but were more popular than we might think possible. The best represented titles today are those manuscripts that managed to find their way into institutions because they were accepted and collected by those institutions. Popular books that were burned might not survive at all or survive in low numbers, like The Mirror of Simple Souls by Marguerite Poret. According to Robert Lerner, quote, we can identify for certain 10 French mirror of the simple soul in the vicinity of the Low Countries copied out between 1300 and 1500, end quote. The text was translated or transliterated from French into Latin, Middle English, and Italian before 1500, and also from Latin to Italian and from English to Latin. Dozens of copies of the mirror appeared in Latin Europe before the 16th century. Copies of selections of the mirror have been found in unexpected manuscripts from the mid-14th century as well. For example, quote, immediately following a French version of Hugh of St. Victor's De Ara Anime, there is an instruction on the spiritual life in the form of a dialogue between God and the souls that not only occasionally echoes the language of the mirror of simple souls, but at one point actually embeds two chapters from this work into the manuscript that is currently in the municipal library of Valenciennes. Despite being burned at the stake for heresy directly connected to the production of this text, Marguerite Poret's ideas lived on. The book maintained a level of desire and popularity that perpetuated the transcription and reproduction of her text, despite the church's condemnation of her ideas. Although it is difficult to judge the popularity of a banned book, this was certainly one of the more popular vernacular mystical texts. Popular texts were those texts that medieval people found most desirable. In our next podcast, we'll examine a popular medieval text that is unknown to the vast majority of people today, including many, many medievalists. That text is On the Misery of the Human Condition by Lotario de Segni. He wrote this text in the year 1195 and was to go on to become Pope Innocent III just three years after completing it in 1198. It became the classic medieval meditation on the human condition and was read throughout Europe for more than 400 years. But why did its popularity suddenly dwindle? What did medieval people find so desirable in its pages? 
You can find out the answers to those questions next week as we explore this text together. That's all for today's episode on medieval bestsellers and how we can identify popular manuscripts. On February 23rd, our exhibition, Margins of Medieval Art, will open in the Chicago Gallery and online. Tomorrow, the Stuttgart Online Book Fair opens at noon and will be available for browsing until next Tuesday, February 22nd. Finally, and importantly, we're having our Groundhog Day sale presenting a do-over day. So if you missed our spring and fall text manuscript updates, this is your chance for a do-over with a new special discount originally through February 18th, that is tomorrow, but we've extended the sale to midweek next week. You can view the exhibitions and videos on our website. In April, we will be participating in both the Winter Show and the New York Book Fair, so please stay tuned for more information about our upcoming fairs, exhibitions, and catalogs. In other news, the Les Lumière podcast has moved to a bi-weekly schedule, so you'll hear from us next on March 3rd. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast, and even to share this podcast on social media or with a friend who might enjoy this episode's topic. You can find out more about Books of Hours and popular manuscripts on our website, and you can reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Listen Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful two weeks.